0: You know how sometimes you meet someone and you're like, I want to be more like her when I grow up? For me, that person is currently Raylan Brandle. She's 47, but doesn't look it. She's an environmental educator, rides a motorcycle, and she's a boxer. Just won her second match. Raylan is a fourth generation Butte girl. Her general badassery I believe its roots can be traced to her growing up here in the 70s and 80s, under the influence of an infamous local hero.
1: I'm evil, Knievel, honey, I'm not supposed to be afraid. (laughs) At 2 p.m., he began the jump that would make him a legend.
2: What a jump! Evil's riding the amazing sky cycle. That gyro power sends him over a hundred feet at top speed.
1: He survived with only a broken nose. Not bad for a daredevil who had broken over 40 bones in his lifetime.
3: Yes, it was it was all about being evil Knievel at that age.
2: Evil Knievel.
3: So she and her friends
0: would zoom around on their proto BMX bikes, trying to conquer the heaps of loose, flowing golden material scattered everywhere on the Butte Hill. Especially this one at the very top
3: of it, the Alice Knob. We went to check it out one day last winter. So this knob was like a plateau, flat on top and then very steep sided all the way around. It was like an octagon, I guess, in a way, but it was really weird shape and it's super fun. So you just try to run your, as fast as you could up it with your bike or a motorbike. When we got to be a little bit older, you'd try to do the telemarking with an, a motorbike, and we'd come from Daly Street and just whew, you know straight up as fast as we could.
0: Today the Alice looks pretty tame. It's been graded, covered with soil, and seeded with grass. But in Ray Lind's day, it loomed over the hamlet of Walkerville. Beckoning would be daredevils.
3: It was like a rite of passage in a way. Like, if you could make the top, then, you know, you cheer, <laughs> put your arms in the air. <laughs> like, for I did it, I did for it. For a lot of you kids, it was right Oh, heck yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you'd play out here, and then fireworks, you'd light your fireworks out here, all those things. And nobody cared, because you couldn't wreck it.
0: You couldn't wreck it, because the Alice Knob and other piles just like it all over town are old mine dumps, the barren leftovers of a century of mining. Butte, the mountain made of metal, no doubt had a bounty of gold, silver, and copper, of course. But the metals weren't pure, like shiny pennies used to be. They were sulfide minerals, bound up with things like lead, arsenic, zinc, iron, sulfur, all of which had to be somehow cleaved from the good stuff. So khaki-colored mounds of waste rock and tailings were just left behind destined to become the favorite stomping grounds of Raylin and generations of Butte kids before her. Mm-hmm. Did you know
3: what you were playing on? Mm-mm. It was just dirt. I always thought dirt looked like this ore body waste that we pull up. I didn't know that dirt was brown and loamy and smelled good and you could grow things in it. I just thought it was like that. We drive down to the bottom of the hill to check out
0: another old haunt, a fallow field known as the Diggings, where she would play archeologist, and unearth all sorts of buried treasure, like animal bones stained
3: blue from all the copper in the ground. My dad's like, you know, that's there because it was a dump, right? And like, oh! And then we talk about these layers because some of them would be this really bright yellow color. Some of them would be greenish, and then we called it clay. But now I know it's tailings, <laughs> and it was really it would be firm, and you could pack it really firm, you know. And and you're touching all this with bare hands. Yeah. yeah of course.
0: The diggings hasn't changed much in 40 years. The big tree that was home base in games of tag is still there, and so are the bike jumps they built out of mine waste back in the day. Did you or your friends think this this was a problem at all?
3: Uh... No, other than, I mean, we had some pretty epic wrecks out here. Some of these jumps are huge, so it was, you know, there's broken arms and concussions and things like that. But it wasn't about, oh, we're going to die from this. I mean, there was never any fear of that other than death by, you know, impact or something. (laughs) Right, not exposure. Not exposure. uh -uh. But her carefree days of youth
0: were shorter than most. Lynn was a tween in the early 80s when Atlantic Richfield abandoned Butte's mines, and the economy hit rock bottom.
3: Our class always seemed to be the class that everything was closing down. Schools were getting closed or we lost a business or families were moving. And I guess I I can describe it as a feeling, like it just, like my stomach would hurt. And I, I don't know if it was that I was picking up the anxiety of the adults or my friends or whatever, but I was worried a lot, I felt worry. Now, it's pretty normal
0: for kids to complain about their hometown and say, there's nothing to do here. I know I certainly
3: did. But Ray Lynn says the difference back then was that our parents were saying, to get a job, to be employed, you're going to have to go to college and get out of here. I mean, they felt urgent about it.
0: The mining city appeared to be dying a slow, painful death. Then one morning, it felt like the last nail was being hammered in Butte's coffin. It was 1987. Ray Lynn was in her dad's truck.
3: You know, I remember all these details, so I think that it's because it hurt. He was giving her a ride to Butte High School, like he did every day. My father and I were just driving right here on Kaw, and we were heading kind of north, and it was on the radio about the. It was, this is after the closure of the mine, but it was on the radio. We we're listening to a radio show about Butte being declared a Superfund site. Her dad got very quiet and listened carefully. Finally, the story kind of gets over, and he's like, well, I don't know how that's going to go. And I asked him, I go, well, what's a super fund? What does that mean? And he he said, well, I got to, my dad was great. He always looked things up or got more information. He goes, well, I got to understand it more. He goes, but it sounds like we're being declared an environmental disaster. I'm Nora Sachs.
0: Welcome to Richest Hill a podcast about the past, present, and future of one of America's most notorious Superfund sites. From Montana Public Radio.
1: Richest Hill is supported by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, family-owned, operated, and argued over since 1980, reminding listeners to think for themselves, but drink with others. SierraNevada.com Butte
0: teenager Raylan Brandle didn't know what Superfund meant because back in the 1980s, nobody did. It was brand new. But while Butte's mining industry made Montana great and electrified America, the flip side of the boom was an environmental bust. One so big, it not only left open wounds on the Butte Hill, it turned an entire river into an industrial sacrifice zone. So today, we're taking a look at the dawning of the Superfund era and the origins of the government program designed to force whoever made the mess to clean it up. This is Episode 5, Out of the Frying Pan, Into the Fire.
4: I fixed you some coffee if you'd like some. If you would drink it, I will bring it to you fixed however you like it.
0: I would love that so much. Thank you. Um, yeah, just a, a little cloud of cream would be great, or milk, whatever you have. Thank you so much. I Thank you. love coffee, especially when I get to yeah. drink it outside, <laughs> under a tree with a Thank bird feeder. You on a rural ranch in the Deer Lodge Valley, next to the banks of the Clark Fork River. My gracious hosts are Wayne Hadley, who you just heard, and his wife, Kathy.
5: So it started for me over coffee. My sister lived in the Love Canal area. That's a blue-collar community in upstate New York. We lived about 10 miles away, my husband and I and our young son, and my sister Lois was our daycare provider. It was 1978. Lois was a young stay-at-home mom,
0: And Kathy was studying fish larvae in Lake Ontario. Every morning on her way to work,
5: she'd drop her kid off at her sister's house, and they'd chit-chat at the kitchen table. So one day, over coffee, she showed me a newspaper article done in a local newspaper about a dump in her neighborhood. And she was worried her son had been sick, had gotten sick that spring and summer, and couldn't figure out why. And so she said, do you think these this dump might have something to do with Michael's being so sick. And I said, gosh, I don't know.
0: They did some research and discovered Lois's whole neighborhood and her child's school had been built directly on top of an industrial nightmare. Here's NBC News's Roger Mudd at the time.
2: From 1947 until 1952, the Hooker Chemical Company used the Love Canal section of Niagara Falls as a dumping site for toxic waste.
0: Now... 20,000 tons of buried chemicals were oozing into the backyards and basements of homes nearby.
5: To find out the extent of the damage, Lois went door to door and heard about things like pets, dogs especially, digging in the yard, coming back with their paws and their noses burned. Some moms decided they wouldn't let their kids outside anymore because when they did, their sneakers would burn. The bottom, the rubber on their sneakers would burn just, just walking around in their yards or their neighborhood. Oh and when she asked about health effects, there were tons and tons of sick kids everywhere. But more than that, there, there seemed to be a lot of miscarriages and a lot of birth defects.
0: Yeah, it was that love canal. And Kathy's sister is Lois Gibbs the quiet housewife-turned-fiery activist who woke the country up to the dangers of abandoned toxic waste in our midst. You are murderers! Each and
5: every one of you in this room are murderers!
0: As the head of the Love Canal Homeowners Association, Gibbs rallied her neighbors and organized loud, angry protests, demanding the government acknowledge the problem and take action. And Kathy was there behind the scenes, every step of the way, helping build the airplane while they were flying it.
5: The pivotal moment that that sort of burned into my brain was that day that the state declared an emergency and all the people that we'd worked with were on the street.
0: But the evacuation order was just for pregnant women and children under the age of two. She says it was broadcast over the radio, like a
5: weather advisory. It was almost like a hurricane was coming to your town or your street. You know, it's like, get out, get out now. That's the kind of warning it was. It was absolutely chaotic.
0: With hundreds
5: of families still in
0: danger, the community was desperate and outraged. So they turned up the heat, held sit-ins, and pulled stunts like holding officials from the Environmental Protection Agency hostage. Lois testified in front of Congress, went to the White House. Finally, in 1980, after two years of fighting, they won. President Carter agreed to use federal aid to permanently relocate all residents and clean up the
1: site. The whole question of the disposal of hazardous waste, especially toxic chemicals, is going to be one of the great environmental challenges of the 1980s. There must never be in our country another Love Canal. Thank you very much.
5: Jimmy Carter really sort of broke the dam. And then shortly thereafter, the Superfund law was passed in Congress. It's called CERCLA, but yeah. and I hope I don't have to tell you what all those no, letters no, mean.
0: CERCLA stands <laughs> for the Comprehensive Environmental Response, Compensation, and Liability Act. It's a mouthful, all right, but the idea behind it is pretty straightforward. The polluter pays. The new law gave EPA the authority to respond to uncontrolled or abandoned hazardous waste sites, figure out who is responsible for the mess, and make them clean it up. It's informally known as Superfund, because originally, the law created a tax on the chemical and petroleum industries. Those monies went to a trust fund that EPA could use to pay for cleanups when no responsible party could be found, so taxpayers
5: wouldn't have to. Kathy says when Superfund passed, We were just really happy because we knew that having lived through the dangers of one toxic waste site, right? that we were sure there were lots of them all over the country. The officials, whether they're local, state, or federal, had no roadmap to deal with them. So this would be a roadmap, and other people would not be going through the same thing, we thought, that Love Canal people did.
0: When the Love Canal battle was over, Lois Gibbs went on to be a leader in the environmental justice movement. But Kathy and her family were ready for a break and some peace and quiet.
5: We thought maybe, maybe we should go to this place, the state of Montana, who we visited a number of times. And it's this beautiful, magnificent, wonderful landscape with these gorgeous mountains, right? And clean water and clean air. So they packed up their lives in New York and headed west. I mean, we had nothing but our camper and our sun and hope. Eventually they settled down near the sleepy little town of Deer Lodge.
0: Deer Lodge is about 40 miles northwest and downstream of Butte, but it feels like it's a world away from the black heart of Montana, the epicenter of greed, power, and industry. Green pastures, cattle, and cottonwoods, not mine dumps or slag piles, dominate this low, flat valley, and so does the Clark Fork River that
5: winds its way through. And I just came to love this river. It was a fantastic place. It's a place where my boys learned how to fish and caught their first trout. Anyway, we ended up spending a lot of time on the river. I noticed when we were on the river, there were these places where nothing was growing. And I didn't know why. Later, many months later, I found out they were called dead zones. Kathy says that's when she
0: realized something was really wrong. The Hadleys had moved to Western Montana to escape America's industrial blunders, but they soon found out they had landed on the banks of the area's largest river basin, the Clark Fork of the Columbia River, which empties into the Pacific Ocean, and one of its most heinously polluted. This is Kathy's husband, Wayne, again, talking about their reaction. What did you think about that Superfund designation back then?
4: kind of laughed about out of the frying pan,
1: into the fire. (laughs) So You had to work hard to come from the first
2: Superfund site and one of the most toxic to the biggest.
0: A lot of myth and lore swirls around the massive family of Superfund sites that spans the upper Clark Fork River Basin. Its existence seems taken for granted, like grizzly bears or wildfires. Clearly, something big happened. But not being from around here and all, I wasn't born knowing its genesis story. The when, how, and why Butte's mining industry trashed an entire watershed. So I jumped at the chance to spend some time on the water, and see those dead zones for myself. It's early June, and I'm on the banks of the Clark Fork River, just a few miles down from the Hadley's Ranch about to hop into a big, blue, inflatable raft.
1: Uh, we got it, we got it. Get in, man. I'm good. Off here. I'm good, man. I, I like launching. I
0: like I know you the
4: do. launching. It's like the control thing.
0: <laughs> My guides are Will McDowell and Alex Leone, two restoration experts with the nonprofit Clark Fork Coalition. They have kind of a master-apprentice relationship, but share a singular goal. This is Will.
1: The mission of our organization is to protect and restore the Clark Fork Watershed.
0: Kathy Hadley was actually a founding member of the coalition, back when she learned how sick the river really was. Staff like Will and Alex float the Clark Fork to monitor how the Superfund cleanup is going and get the public involved. Today, I'm a pilgrim on their journey. We cruise past cow pastures and banks dense with willows and water birch. To my untrained eye, the river corridor looks pretty lush with vegetation, and feels alive. What do you see? Osprey!
1: Osprey! Um, that's a fish-eater.
0: But we begin to find clues that strange things are afoot on the Clark Fork River. Alex points out that in certain layers of the bank, plant roots are mysteriously missing. Then, we turn a corner into a patch of earth the size of a baseball field, that's completely bald.
4: So let's go into the slicken because this is like one of the nastiest ones.
0: I've heard that slickens are zones of mine tailings so concentrated and so contaminated with heavy metals like copper, cadmium, lead, zinc, and arsenic that nothing will grow. But I've never seen one up close until now. I scramble out of the raft after Alex and up onto the bare mud. Under my sandals, it's squishy like a waterbed. The ground is a mustardy color with a turquoise sheen, pitted with pockets of electric blue copper salts. I have this weird sensation that we've teleported to a poisoned planet.
4: It's like an otherworldly like moonscape, somewhat, you know? It reminds me of the Southwest and it reminds me of the moon at the same time.
0: But Will, who's a hydrogeologist and biologist by training and has been doing conservation and restoration work for more than three decades, is way past feeling any sense of awe.
1: This is a shocking scene, really, that we're standing in. We're looking at bright orange slickens, not a single blade of grass growing on it, dead stumps preserved in the slickens from a 100 years ago, bright turquoise copper fluorescing up to the surface, green slimy water ponding up on the slickens, and then behind it, you see the beauty of Montana. You see the Anaconda Range, you see the Flint Creek Range, snow-capped. And then in front of us, we see nothing but devastation, death, and contamination.
0: Is this hard for you to look at considering you do so much work in this area?
1: I I don't see anything redeeming about it. Some people can see beauty in this. All I see is a horrible, horrible mess that's not only killed all the life on the site that we're looking at, but it continues to kill life off-site as wind and water transport this material somewhere else.
0: All the nasty stuff embedded in the tailings is toxic at varying degrees to us, plants, and especially fish. And yet, here in this peaceful valley, 40 miles from Butte, we're surrounded by cattle ranches, not copper mines. So how on earth did it get here? And how far downstream does Butte's toxic mining legacy reach? We'll pick it up there after this short break.
2: Hey there, I'm Nick Mott, producer here at Rich's Hill, and I'm chiming in because it's really unique what we're able to do here at Montana Public Radio. We spend months reporting and producing long, important stories like Rich's Hill. To give you stuff like this, the content you want, we need you. Listener donations help make Richest Hill possible. If you're a fan of the show, would you consider making a financial contribution to support our podcast? Doesn't matter how big, doesn't matter how small, without you, we just couldn't do it. Go to buttepodcast.org and look for the Donate tab. Thanks for letting us know you care.
1: Richest Hill is supported by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Family-owned, operated, and argued over since 1980. Reminding listeners to think for themselves, but drink with others. Sierra Nevada.com.
0: I'm back on the banks of the Clark Fork River with Alex Leone and Will McDowell from the Clark Fork Coalition, trying to imagine what this landscape must have looked like when the native Salish people and beavers controlled it, which Alex assures me they did for millennia. He says,
4: This whole area would have been covered with riparian vegetation. There would have been channels going every which way. It would have been hard to find where the river actually was.
0: In the 1800s, the European settlers and their mining and ranching began to take their toll. And then, in May 1908, so did Mother Nature. Will tells me that spring, it started raining, and it didn't stop.
1: I heard 33 straight days of rain at this time of year on a substantial snowpack. And it was very concentrated, heavy rains in the Butte area particularly.
0: Butte sits high up in the northern Rockies, at the easternmost headwaters of the Clark Fork River, what used to be a tiny mountain stream called Silver Bow Creek. But by the turn of the 20th century, during Butte's copper boom, the stream was an industrial sewer. Waste from Butte's mines and Anaconda's smelter was dumped right into Silverbow Creek or piled high on its banks, flushing seasonal doses of poison downstream. Then came the great flood of 1908, the biggest flood on record. Will says the Clark Fork River, which here is about 50 to 70 feet across, swelled over a quarter mile wide in some places.
1: And I talked to a guy down stream of Deer Lodge whose grandpa recounted to him when they were ranching down there what it was like. Their house is a good, over almost a third of a mile from the river. They said the water was up on their front porch and to get to Garrison, which is a few miles downstream of them, they had to get in a boat and row down to Garrison from in, their front porch. in
0: 1908.
1: In 1908, during this flood event, yeah.
0: I gotta say, It all sounds pretty biblical, because the sins and cast-offs of industry gathered at the headwaters didn't stay there. Thanks to gravity, water flows downhill. So during the Great Flood, the genie escaped from the bottle. Millions of tons of junk was swept into Silver Bow Creek and the Clark Fork River down below. And everywhere the muddy brown waters slowed, dirty sediments dropped out all across the floodplain, especially around here where the river meanders through this low, flat valley.
1: This ranch has some of the worst contamination of any place in the upper Clark Fork, just because of where it's located physically on the landscape.
0: Obviously, this chunk of the river hasn't been cleaned up yet. But when its turn comes, the floodplain will have to be recreated from scratch. Will's watched it happen on other sections.
1: When they're building it, it looks like somebody's building a Walmart parking lot. You're just looking for hundreds of yards across bare dirt. It looks like an industrial site when it's happening.
0: First, the contaminated areas are scraped away with excavators. Thousands of dump truck loads of dirty dirt get hauled away. Fresh, clean soil is brought in, and the banks are replanted with riparian vegetation. The idea is once the poison is gone, then the healing can begin.
1: There's a huge opportunity the state of Montana is living right now to restore a river's ecosystem on a giant scale. I mean, we're talking Montana's counties are big, right? We're talking about Missoula County, Granite County, Powell County, Deer Lodge County, Silver Bow County. We're talking about a whole swath of the western part of the state that's undergoing a major cleanup and restoration program.
0: The river is a tie that binds. The Great Flood wreaked ecological havoc on more than 140 stream miles of this watershed. That's like driving from Washington, D.C. to Philadelphia. But the devastation gave birth to something, too. One of the largest complex of Superfund sites in the country. The state is in charge of this puzzle piece of the cleanup, the river's reconstructive surgery. It's projected to cost more than $100 million. And advocates like Will and Alex believe when it's done, the river can and will make a comeback.
1: I think we're on a great path. I'm really grateful that the Superfund existed i think without it we'd be in a hell of a fix right now where are we going to come up with hundreds yep. and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars yep. to clean up all these messes yep. there's no way
0: this is a crucial point because of a little thing called retroactive liability and Superfund law the state of montana is doing the cleanup on the river but they're not paying for it atlantic richfield is
1: arco the gasoline that could save you up to 30 cents a gallon
0: That's the oil company that bought out the Anaconda Copper Mining Company back in 1977. Get out of
1: the dark and compare ARCO prices.
0: That's something we'll be diving into later on, trust me. So far, less than one fifth of the river that's going to be rebuilt has been cleaned up. So the state has a long way to go. And with so much ancient contamination haunting its banks, Will feels a sense of urgency.
1: If we don't do this cleanup right and do it efficiently, right now with the resources available, it won't happen. And your generation and the next generation will keep looking at it going, damn, I wish we hadn't missed the chance. We hadn't missed the boat.
0: Okay, but here's the kind of crazy thing. When Superfund arrived in Montana, it didn't start here, on this blighted reach of river, or on the Butte Hill, blanketed in raw mine dumps, or even at the giant Berkeley pit, left for dead and flooding with acid mine drainage. It started 120 miles downstream of Butte with tainted tap water at an old hydroelectric dam just outside the liberal stronghold college town of Missoula. Come on now. That's where we're headed next. Okay, I've now driven two hours west from Butte and I'm standing on a forested bluff at Milltown State Park, Montana's newest which is just outside of Missoula. Semis and Subarus speed by on the interstate, slicing through the Green Valley. Cliff swallows swoop and soar overhead. But the real thrill is watching the Blackfoot, you know, the river that runs through it merge into one with the Clark Fork.
4: It's a great view, you can see the confluence of the two rivers coming together, and right down below us is where the dam used to be. It's kind of hard to tell these days, but uh, I know where it was.
0: (laughs) Peter Nielsen is retired now, but for most of his career as Missoula County's environmental health supervisor, he was involved in a decades-long, community-driven effort to get it out. Milltown Dam was not just any dam. It was built by Butte's own copper king, William A. Clark, to harness the rivers and power the region's lumber mills. It came online in January of 1908. Residents celebrated.
4: And it was that same year that we had the flood of record on the Clark Fork, something exceeding the 100-year flood.
0: Right. The watery chaos that left a lethal trail of mining sediments up and down Bow Creek and the upper Clark Fork River delivered them all the way here, too. But this dam acted like a big plug. So 6.6 million cubic yards of toxic sludge piled up behind it, then settled to the bottom of the mile-long reservoir, 20 to 30 feet deep. One cubic yard would more or less fill up the bed of my pickup truck. So, yeah, that's quite a bit of toxic sludge.
4: And nobody really knew it at the time, but that was the start of a big problem here that wasn't discovered until much later with the groundwater in particular.
0: 70-some years later, in 1981, a routine county health inspection revealed the dirty secret lurking just under the surface of Missoula's quiet backwater. High levels of arsenic in public drinking water wells nearby. But arsenic, the king of poisons, wasn't used by the local lumber industry. Residents were alarmed and wondered,
4: Where's the arsenic coming from?
0: Some suspected the culprit could be the toxic sludge, known to be full of heavy metals, trapped behind the dam. So in the middle of winter, two university scientists ventured onto the frozen reservoir, cut holes in the ice, and collected samples of the antique sediments to find out... Well,
4: what's going on? Is there arsenic in the sediments? Sure enough, there was. And they began to think about it, map the hydrogeology a little bit in the area, see where the water flows. And then that's how it was discovered that arsenic coming all the way from 120 miles upstream in Butte was affecting the water supply in Milltown.
0: There's never a good time to learn that your drinking water is being poisoned by the ghosts of the mining industry. But there was a silver lining. About a year earlier, Superfund was passed, offering a way to deal with it. Peter says the community and elected officials at every level of government lobbied EPA to put Milltown on the who's who of top toxic places, the Superfund national priorities list.
4: So we had a lot of political pressure generated towards doing something about Milltown and everybody then started to say, well, wait a second, where's this all coming from? What about upstream?
0: The pressure, plus mounting scientific evidence, worked. In 1983, EPA designated three Superfund sites in the Clark Fork Basin. Milltown Reservoir Sediments, the Anaconda Smelter, and Silver Bow Creek. The first in Montana, and some of the earliest in the whole country. What was the thinking here of trying to get this new law applied to Milltown?
4: Well, I think there was a lot of wishful thinking about what it might do and a lot of hopeful thinking that it might be a immediate savior and that soon there'd be a remedy that'd be paid for. I don't think we all understood the process and how it really worked and how long it would take.
0: He says a lot of the struggle is baked into the way Superfund is set up.
4: The government says we have a problem. You're responsible for creating that problem to ARCO.
0: ARCO is short for Atlantic Richfield Company.
4: You go fix it. You're going to pay to clean it up. And ARCO says, no, I'm not. And the government says, yes, you are. (laughs) And then ARCO says, no, we're not.
0: You get the idea. Early on, Superfund did help get a replacement water supply for the 33 at-risk households in Milltown. But EPA's original cleanup fix was basically to declare the polluted aquifer off limits and leave the dam in place.
4: And frankly, this kind of simmered along for a long time after that. Ironically, to me, it really wasn't until something happened that killed a bunch of fish that the public interest turned on real strong.
0: One winter, in 1996, a huge ice jam scraped up the reservoir's buried sediments. Metal-laden silt spilled downstream. The next spring, more than half of the fish in the river were dead. Peter says that's when everything changed. Missoula, where breweries make beers named Trout Slayer and Shadowcaster, decided the old dam was a threat to public health and the watershed and had to go. Folks here figure it out pretty quickly. They'd have to be the ones to make that happen. Think of Superfund as a big...
4: Refrigerator sitting in your kitchen in the middle of the room. It's like, if you don't push it out of the way, it ain't gonna move. And as soon as you stop pushing, it's not gonna move anymore. So if you wanna make it work for you, you gotta push it. And you gotta push it in the right direction. And you gotta keep pushing it because it's just gonna languish otherwise.
0: The Clark Fork Coalition spearheaded a campaign calling for removing the dam and restoring the river, with billboards yelling sassy slogans like, not all time bombs tick. Peter helped get other local government officials on board. And EPA got a lot of mail, like 10,000 postcards and letters in support of dam removal.
4: Suddenly they were getting more comment on this Superfund site than they had gotten on any Superfund site in the country ever. And it was not even a public comment period.
0: Peter says over time, Missoulians came up with a lofty vision for what a permanent cleanup and river restoration should look like and wouldn't back down or settle for less for more than two decades. Today, Milltown is widely touted as a Superfund success story.
4: This dam was removed and these sediments were cleaned up, this aquifer restored, and this river protected 30 years later. There are signs of hope there that we we can do this elsewhere too, hopefully.
0: I find the new state park that's here now, and these rivers flowing free again after a century of industrial servitude, deeply inspiring. And there are some really cool stories, like willow seeds that were deposited here by the great flood and are now germinating 111 years later. But to be honest, I feel a little jealous too, and find myself wondering out loud, why is the cleanup all done here, and not up in Butte, the source of the historic pollution, where 35,000 people live. Peter says that's a valid question, one he hears a lot.
4: It's hard for people to understand, well, why'd you start at the bottom? Why don't you start at the top and work your way down?
0: Part of it was timing. Once Missoula got the ball rolling at Milltown, locals didn't want to wait to clean it up or risk collecting any more waste from upstream. But there was another reason for the delay. Peter says at the beginning of the Superfund era, in the early 80s, the state and EPA launched a river-wide study. And when they began investigating communities upstream, the response there wasn't unsupportive. It was straight-up resistant.
4: Just be brutally honest. Yeah, people really want want them to do a complete job now. I'm glad to see that. But that wasn't the case then.
0: He says often when you go into a community and find a problem and propose something like a Superfund listing, there's concern that the label will hurt the community, its chances of survival.
4: What I always ask people to remind themselves of, it's not the label, it's not the name, it's what's in the ground that's limiting you.
0: Why was there so much fear and resistance to a Superfund cleanup in Butte? And is that really the whole story? Why spend your studying? We know, we already know. Let's just get out there and get it done. That's all coming up next time on Richest Hill.
2: Richest Hill is a production of Montana Public Radio. Nora Sachs is our host and reporter. I'm Nick Mott, our producer. Eric Whitney is our executive producer. Josh Burnham is our digital editor. Our theme music is by Dublin Gulch. Other original music composed and performed by Jonas Bonetta and Oren Pearson. Special thanks to Raylan Brandle, Kathy and Wayne Hadley, Alex Leone, Will McDowell, the Clarkfort Coalition, Peter Nielsen, Mike Castudia, Milltown State Park, Joel Chavez, Daniel Hogan, works by authors Brad Tyre and David Brooks, and NPR Story Lab. Our documentary audio comes from the New York Times Retro Report, PRI's Living on Earth, and the documentary A Fear Scream Fire. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and stay up to date at ButtePodcast.org.